Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Dale Chu argues that Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis are focusing too much on divisive culture war issues in their education platforms. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber tells us how Massachusetts high schools improve their students' long-term life outcomes through higher test scores and higher college aspirations. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. You hear anybody talking about it other than us uh, wonkety-wonks? No. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Dale Chu. Dale, welcome back to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike, and uh, happy President's Day. Oh, well, thank you. And to you as well. And to you as well. Dale, as many of you know, is a senior visiting fellow at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, also independent consultant, doing lots of other cool stuff in the education reformosphere. Uh, he's been at the Indiana and Florida Departments of Education. He also was a teacher and founding principal at a high-performing urban charter school. You have done it all, Dale. No, when you say it like that, Mike, you make me blush. <laughs> You're also just back uh, from a month uh, in Asia with your family, which is uh, super cool. Did you like go visit any schools at all uh, while you were over there? Did not visit any schools, but did get to see some young children um, sort of like, you know, um, bopping around, which, you yeah. know, that's sort of a universal thing for young kids, the bopping. It was a great trip. Uh, thanks for asking, Mike. Great to be back, too. Uh, good to have you back on the show. You are back writing for us again. And your most recent blog post was about, guess what? Politics, education politics, most specifically. Let's talk about that on Ed Reform Update. All right. Well, it is happening. Uh, the 2024 election campaign is up and running. People always remark on how early it is, but it's actually a little slow and a little late this year compared to some other times. Of course, Donald Trump is in uh, and that's creating all kinds of uh, reverberations. Other candidates a little bit slower to get in, but Nikki Haley last week is officially in. Everyone expects Ron DeSantis to get in after the Florida legislature finishes its session. And you dig into what Trump and DeSantis have been saying, and you're not a big fan. Tell us about it. You know, I think the last few years have been sort of tough for policy aficionados. Like you and I, Mike, the, the politics have become very performative. It's very theatrical. And when you mentioned sort of Trump, especially like um, his announcement last month, his quote unquote platform, his policy proposals um, were really thick on the ad hominems and just sort of this culture war stuff and, you know, left a lot to be desired in terms of serious policy proposals. Uh, and I think what Trump's doing and what DeSantis is doing and even Nikki Haley to some extent now, they're emphasizing a lot of these cultural grievances around race, gender, pedagogy, the kind of thing that really energizes, I think, the hardcore base, but really repels um, sort of independent swing voters sort of the well-educated suburbanites that I think are necessary, needed to win a presidential election. Clearly, from my vantage point, the lesson from the last midterms maybe was not learned, because uh, it seems like folks on that side of the aisle are going full steam ahead, all the culture war stuff. Uh, they could be overplaying their hand again. It sure seems like it. Now, I would tweak you a little bit on what you said. You said it was performative. I, I guess that's true for Trump. For DeSantis, 
some of this is real, right? I mean, you have these reports in Florida, people taking books off library shelves while they're going through these processes to see which of these books are going to be allowed or not. From my perspective, it's not like there's no there there. There were some crazy things being pushed on our schools from the far left in recent years. Uh, Even if you could say some of it was well-meaning, some of it in the aftermath of of George Floyd's terrible murder, well-meaning in terms of trying to be more inclusive for, say, uh, LGBTQ kids or, or families. And that kind of stuff, to to the degree that it's about trying to be inclusive, uh, trying to be understanding of differences, that all is something that a lot of these wealthy suburbanites care a lot about, right? But uh, it's also got pretty extreme uh, in some cases. I mean, some of these debates about not telling parents if their kids were interested in transitioning uh, to another gender, right? Or some books, you know, that showed up in school libraries that really didn't seem uh, age appropriate, shall we say. Also on the race front, you know, you look at, for example, the AP African-American studies debate that's been going on, you know, the preliminary draft of that syllabus had some pretty provocative stuff that, you know, I don't think anybody could claim was was short of ideology. You know, some of the stuff about very recent history, the Black Lives Matter movement, reparations. These are the kinds of issues that a lot of conservatives, and I think even moderates, are worried about showing up in our schools because it feels like indoctrination. It feels like a particular agenda is is being pushed. So it's not like there's no there there. So is it, what, what's the complaint that you have then, as I try to play devil's advocate, that it's going too far, that it, and it's not what being balanced by more of the meat and potato stuff around how our kids are doing and reading and math? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. I, I think certainly, just on, the, on your last point in terms of the AP African-American studies course, right? We've seen now, I think there's like four states that said now they're going to review the the college board curriculum as well, right? I think what we're seeing in terms of like what's happening in Florida, there's other red states that are picking up on that. I think this is definitely mapping onto a larger trend in terms of bifurcation among red and blue states mm-hmm. in terms of state policies. I know, Mike, you've written about this before, right? I mean, do we want a world where red states and blue states mm-hmm. are teaching different versions of history? I think from a trajectory standpoint, it seems like we're headed that way. So that's one layer. Certainly for me, as a more of an old school reformer, I'm concerned of the lack of attention to reading, writing, and arithmetic. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I, I keep thinking about sort of like, you know, post 9-11, there was sort of this coming together, this solidarity, right? I, I use 9-11 because from my vantage point, that was a very big mm-hmm. sort of formative moment in my life. I don't know if we could have something like that anymore now in, in today's culture and zeitgeist, right? Like you would think post-pandemic, there would be, I don't know, my, my naive side said there would, be a, there would be a coming together there. We'd recognize how much our kids have lost and suffered, and we should be everyone coming together on that. There has been no indication of that. I don't know, it's frustrating. I think it's also difficult to have some of these com- more serious conversations, just given all of this stuff in the water. Things are so charged. Um, mm-hmm. People jump to assumptions very quickly. Uh, and in this sort of social media bubble, um, especially this world where nationalization of politics, you know, everything becomes catastrophized. It's very, very tough to sort of like have sort of logical reason conversations yeah. on this topic. Yeah. No, that's right. And look, you know, David Brooks last week, a great column saying, where's the national leadership on pandemic recovery for our kids around learning loss? President Biden didn't mention it in his State of the Union address. That's right. Yeah. Right. These yeah. candidates yeah. aren't talking about it. Uh, meanwhile, we have a huge risk that we're going to lose this generation of kids, right, that they're going to enter the workforce in a few years or five years or 10 years, they're going to have way fewer skills than they otherwise would have. And that has real world implications. You hear anybody talking about it other than us uh, wonkety wonks? No. Yeah. That's yeah. a big problem. 
I, mean, I would say from an encouraging standpoint, I feel like when I have the opportunity and I'm fortunate enough to talk with school and district leaders uh, and my work, Mike, they happen often to be in, uh, of CMOs, high-performing mm-hmm. CMOs that tend to mm-hmm. serve um, more of our mar- marginalized populations in this country. Like they're not focused on this kind of stuff, right? Like during the pandemic, when I was talking with them, like a lot of their concern was around safety. It was around, you know, making sure that Education could be delivered remotely. Right now, coming out of the pandemic, there really is a lot of recognition that, hey, our kids are really way behind. We've really got to figure all this out. But mm-hmm. there's challenges in terms of, for instance, um, new teachers and just some of the culture, you know, the cultural issues that have affected this younger generation, right? But it's not sort of this thick red meat political stuff that you hear Trump and DeSantis talking a lot about. That's a small modicum of encouragement from my vantage point. Well, one one last question back to the politics. I guess uh, some people would say, well, Glenn Youngkin ran on some of this stuff. In 2019, he did well. Of course, uh, DeSantis, I'm sorry, 2021, <laughs> getting my years mixed up. <laughs> yep. DeSantis had a huge victory in 2022 in Florida, right? Despite fighting culture wars on all kinds of fronts. When we look at this and say, we don't know if this is going to play in, an, in the national election in a midterm. I mean, are, are we on solid ground? Yeah. So, I mean, like when I look at it from a political standpoint, Mike, like I kind of feel like the fact that folks are very hesitant to jump in, to jump in the the barnyard with Trump, right? Um, Like, I think that's very telling on that standpoint. I mean, yes, I think folks are definitely saying, like, look at how DeSantis had the landslide with his recent election. It it sort of proves all these points that his his angles, right? But um, I don't know. I think like, you know, once you get in with Trump, Everyone sort of knows like he's going to try to pull every everyone into the mud. He's going to try to pull mm-hmm. things right as much as possible, right? And even if, and I write this is what I write, write about to some extent in my piece is if even if DeSantis emerges from that scrum victorious, I mean, what happens after that, right? I could I don't see Trump getting behind someone else. He has enough right there just to sink whoever the Republican nominee is mm-hmm. if it isn't Trump. I mean, you can have a scenario there. We don't know what's going to happen on the other side of the aisle in terms of whether Biden will. I mean, he's saying he's going to probably run again. But I don't know. There's just so many unknowns. It's just not clear to me that the, the tack that GOP is taking, especially the leading candidates, is a winning one. But I'm not a cephologist, so, so what do I know? So there you go. All right. And look, maybe maybe we need uh, Ed in 24. <laughs> I think about our Ed in 08, although it's got to be real Ed, right? Not culture war Ed, but meat and potatoes Ed. Like, hey. Yeah. Let's get back to taking care of these kids' uh, academic, social, emotional needs and not Amen. just fighting with other adults, uh, you know, using schools as our uh, another forum. Like Twitter's not enough. We got to mess with the schools as well. All right. Yeah. Hey, Dale, appreciate you coming on the show. Great to have you back. Of course. You back on uh, sometime soon. Thanks for having me. Great seeing you, Mike. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. You noted we we are some of the few people working on this President's Day when we are doing this recording. Actually, our colleague David is home with the kids. But uh, yep. yeah, you know, Amber, we 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 work on President's Day. We took Juneteenth off. So. We did, but you know, I kind of like the idea of having a day off in June, a little bit more than February. So I'm not I'm not complaining. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, no, there is something to that, especially gosh, this year, you know. We have, you know, I've got these two boys that are very much into skiing or snowboarding and the weather's been terrible for it. So, yes, you know, too warm, it's, right? 
It's like in the fifties, which is neither like enough to really enjoy a beautiful day, but also too warm to go skiing. Yeah. You know what it's good weather for, Mike? What's that? Pickleball. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> I yes. had some friends visit this weekend and I, I dragged them out there to the pickleball court. And of course they loved it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is why we don't, we have a huge shortage of pickleball courts in America right now. <laughs> That's right. Good stuff. You got to get your boys out there. They're going to like it. Uh, you know what? Actually, Nico this weekend, he tried pickleball with some friends and he yeah. did. He said it was uh, great. And he's a fun. kid. We we tried to get him to like tennis and uh, yeah, that didn't go well. So yeah, much pickleball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, what you got for us this week? Uh, we have uh, a new working paper from analysts at Brown and Harvard. You're going to like this one. They're okay. examining high school's effects on longer-term outcomes. Uh, they're using student-level data from the Massachusetts Department of Ed. They have rich data, which they're going to need, around demographics, enrollment, test scores, and student survey data, which is kind of new, mm-hmm. um, which means they have controls uh, around parents' highest level of education, which is important. And students' plans after high school. So prior value-added studies typically don't have those additional controls. So that's nice. Uh, they're focused on students who entered ninth grade for the first time during 2002-3 and 2003-4. Uh, by studying those years, they have enough time to look at longer-term outcomes. So in particular, they're looking at earnings at roughly age 30 as well as college attendance and college graduation from two- or four-year colleges. And, of course, then they're also looking at short-term outcomes like test scores, attendance, whether a kid is on track to graduate. Their sample has 106 public high schools that serve large numbers of students from low-income families. They use eligibility for free and reduced lunch in eighth grade and schools that have at least 25% of all students identified as low income. So some of these schools might have kids that aren't you know, super low income, um, but still um, that's their measure. They use the first public high school a student attended in the analysis, and some of them are gonna switch. Um, so it's really more like an, an intent to treat kind of design. Mm-hmm. Their school value added model estimates a school's effect on a given long-term income, again, controlling for student prior achievement, demographic characteristics, and the survey data that I just uh, mentioned, parents' education, those types of things. They're comparing results to attendance at the average school in the sample. Key results, similar students who attend schools at the 80th percentile are six percentage points more likely to graduate from a four-year college and earn 13% or $3,600 more annually at age 30 compared to peers who attend schools at the 20th percentile. Interesting. And, All right. Now, let me make yep. sure I understand this. When you say those percentiles, you mean percentile in value added? That's right. In value add, school level value okay. added. All right. So these are so schools that are particularly good at raising test scores over the course of high school. For low-income kids. For right, low-income kids, those students go on to graduate at higher rates and therefore make more money. That's right. Okay. Uh, well, it might not be a therefore. I'll tell you about that in a second. Uh, <laughs> okay. They put on the same scale the two longer run outcomes, and they find another way of saying it. One standard deviation improvement in school value added raises low-income students' probability of four-year college graduation by 1.15 standard deviation. 
and earnings equates to 0.11 standard deviations. And basically they say, you know, given all these other factors that might play into a student's later life outcomes, that's that school effect is quite large, 0.15, 0.11. Next, they look at whether schools impacts on short-term measures. So again, these are 10th grade test scores, attendance, college aspirations, those types of things whether they predict impact on longer-term measures, and for the most part, they do. Mm-hmm. For instance, schools that promote four-year college graduation rates more tend to be those that improve students' test scores and college aspirations. Schools that improve two- and four-year college going also boost student earnings. But um, since these short-term measures like attendance and 10th grade test scores uh, remain significant predictors of earnings, They say this suggests that the high schools influence earnings above and beyond their impacts on post-secondary educational attainment. Mm -hmm. And then they look at peer effects and they find that the impacts of peers, they use some sort of peer composite measure, largely operates through the short-term measures. So they did look at those peer effects. And finally, the schools that improve outcomes the most are not simply those that serve relatively few economically disadvantaged kids. When they plot each school's effect on the longer uh, run outcomes against the share of students from low-income families in the school, they see that across the distribution, there are schools that improve outcomes more and those that don't, meaning that we do have some schools that serve high proportions of economically disadvantaged students that have substantial positive impacts on their later life outcomes. That's very good news. Uh, moreover, in the discussion section, they start getting into, well, you know, it's good to know that these longer term impacts and short run measures are related. So, you know, if you can improve attendance and college aspirations, uh, those things predict their effects on these longer run outcomes. So we should keep fine tuning uh, these other measures that are easier to collect uh, mm. than some of these longer term measures. So remind me, are some of these high schools, could they be charter schools in Massachusetts? Uh, I these? don't think they included charter schools, Mike. I didn't okay. see the word charter in the entire study. So uh, I don't think they were included. Okay. But if uh, these authors, if I'm wrong, let me know. Yes, because I, I am curious, because there are some fantastic uh, high poverty charter schools in Boston. Uh, and I wonder if they might be part of this, uh, part of this. Look, I think this, this is super important, Amber. You're right. I do like this one. There's been a long running debate about whether test scores mean anything, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whether schools that boost test scores, do they actually have an impact on what we might think of as the real world uh, with mm-hmm. college going and college completion or labor market outcomes, wages? And this is more evidence that the answer is yes. And I like it that, as you say, it's not just by getting kids to go to college that they might be boosting wages, that just boosting their reading and math skills uh, should equate to higher wages even on its own, right? Right. Uh, Whether the kids go to college or not. I mean, that's a big reason why there's the college wage premium is because it's all, it's a large, a big part of it is the skill premium. Mm -hmm. There could be sheepskin effects uh, as well, but uh, this is exciting. Do, do yeah, you think yeah. uh, somebody could do this for elementary schools or middle schools? Uh, um, I think if we obviously if they have the data, right, that that they need. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I've read one about middle schools, um, but it's been a while. I mean, this is still relatively new. Was it you and Jay that debated about this years yeah, ago? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there just wasn't, you know, there weren't a ton of studies at the time. So we are growing uh, slowly, uh, these data. Well, and I'm always, you know, interested because there are, have been these studies where the test score impacts seem to fade out over time. 
sometimes, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you, right. you can boost a kid's reading or math scores uh, for a few years, maybe with a great intervention, and then maybe they start to drift back down again. Uh, mm-hmm. But those kids still end up doing better than they otherwise would, or so it appears on, on these real world measures. Right. So again, let us shout it from the rooftop. Student achievement matters. Yes, it matters. Matter. It matters. And what do you think about these interim? I mean, this college aspirations was kind of interesting, right? Um, because that's a that's a data data point we don't normally have, um, you know. And they were talking about okay, well, that one might be one that's easier to game. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, if it's predicting effects on longer run outcomes, you know, and if if you know, I think about some of the charter schools you're mentioning, right? That mm-hmm. you know, all the teachers put up their college flags, you know, where they attended college, and they really talk about college to kids. And uh, I mean, I, I know, I know that all, all kids are not going to go for various mm-hmm. reasons, but mm-hmm. anyway, I mean, I, I think that's, that was an interesting measure that maybe we didn't know about before. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of all of the Seth Gershenson studies on uh, teacher expectations, Seth mm-hmm. and others, including some for us, right? Whether it's just a proxy or something for high teacher expectations, it matters. If the right. message to kids is we believe in you, we think you can do great things. And Yes. Okay. One of those great things is go to college and graduate from college. Maybe there's other great things too, but it's the notion that we have high aspirations for you and and for your life. Yes, indeed. All right. Good. Hey, good stuff, Amber. Thank you so much. That is all the time though that we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm Amber Northern. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.